You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello and welcome. Today, I want to look at a recent decision from the Irish Workplace Relations Commission. This was a race discrimination claim brought under the Employment Equality Act. And the reason I've chosen this particular case is because it's a very good, a very strong example of how an employer can successfully defend a discrimination claim. And it'll show that an employer doesn't necessarily have to go to overly significant lengths to succeed in this type of defence. All too often, the type of cases that are actually reported or that make it as far as the Commission are cases in which the employer loses and ends up having to pay a significant award to an employee. So it's a case well worth looking at. But before we get to any of that, let's have a look at what else has been happening in the employment law world since our last episode. Because we're in parliamentary recess for the summer, all of the draft legislation we've been watching for the past number of months is of course on hold, and it's unlikely anything is going to happen with any of these proposals until probably the end of October at earliest. The most significant development or the most newsworthy development in recent weeks has been the Keepak case. And this is a case many of you may have seen reported in the media generally because it did attract a lot of attention. It was a case in which the Irish Labour Court awarded €7,500 to a former employee of Keepak in respect of working time breaches. She claimed in particular that she was regularly working up to 60 hours a week in breach of the average working week restrictions of 48 hours per week. This was because she was having to work late at night sorting out emails and responding to emails out of hours. This has become quite a widespread practice and in many sectors is considered a regular part of the role, so it's a decision that understandably attracted a lot of attention. I'm not actually going to go into any detail on the case today because we are doing a separate client briefing note for you all on it. With our views on additional points, the employer may have raised in the case which could have made the difference and how employers should now be adapting their work practices following this decision. But there is still a balance to be achieved because the concern is that some employers may go too far in trying to react to this decision and make their practices unworkable. Suffice it to say that there was one obvious or significant point which I think the employer should have been able to run in that case, which if they had, it could well have made the difference for the employer. For those of you in the financial services world, you may recall a number of episodes ago we discussed a proposal from the Central Bank of Ireland to introduce a regime quite similar to the UK senior manager regime. The Central Bank has now concluded its report on behaviour and culture and in that it includes quite a detailed proposal in regard to an enhanced individual accountability framework, which in substance is very similar to the UK senior manager and certification regime. When you look at the detail of the proposal, if it's adapted and rolled out, it will include issues such as conduct standards, standards for business, all of which are very similar to the UK FCA principles for business. Similarly, it would involve responsibility maps and prescribed responsibilities for certain individual functions, all of which, again, almost mirrors the UK model. For those of you who have been through the rollout of this in the UK, you'll know how much time is involved and how significant an impact it can have on day-to-day working practices. There's no indication as yet as to whether the Irish government will actually adopt this proposal, and even if they do, it could easily be at least 18 months if not 24 months before anything actually takes effect. What we can say, however, is that there is clearly very strong support for this type of regime within the CBI. 
so it's not going to go away. We'll keep an eye on this and keep you updated. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. Let me turn now to our case review for today. This case has the very forgettable title of a factory operative and a food manufacturer, which of course is the Workplace Relations Commission's practice of anonymising employee and employer names at first instance. The facts of the case, however, and the lessons to be learned from it should be memorable because they're very useful for employers. Let me run through the facts of the case and put it in context. The claimant himself was a Romanian national who had moved to Ireland in September 2014 and pretty soon after that started to work for the employer, the defendant in this case. The claim itself was a claim of race discrimination by the Romanian national against two of his colleagues in regard to a number of comments that were made and general harassment in the workplace. More specifically, the main incident involved allegedly occurred on the 12th of December 2016. And what happened here was that two of his colleagues, a Mr B and a Mr McSee from the employer's maintenance department, made a number of racist comments towards him, identifying him as a gypsy and as a Syrian. The claimant also alleged that there had been two earlier incidents in October and November of the same year in which similar comments had been made. He claimed that when he referred the matter to management in December 2016, while they did investigate it, they did not take it seriously. The investigation found against him on the basis of insufficient evidence. He also explained that an awareness programme that the company had run following his grievance lasted only five minutes and was scheduled at a time when a large number of staff were not even at the workplace. He referred then to a second grievance which he had raised with management in August 2017. He explained that at this point he had requested the company to review a large volume of CCTV footage which he claimed would prove the allegations he was making against his colleagues. He also explained that he had asked the employer to change his shift or to change his work site so that he wouldn't have to work with the two individuals anymore. In his evidence, he alleged that all of these requests were unreasonably refused by the employer. The employer's evidence, unsurprisingly, was quite different. The employer explained that when the first incident was raised with management in December 2016, that he had brought it to his line manager. The line manager suggested that he bring it to the attention of Miss M, who was the factory manager and the person who ordinarily would look after such matters. He refused, however, to bring it to Miss M's attention or to identify the individuals against whom he was making the allegations. He did, however, the next day agree to meet with Miss M and verbally communicated what his complaint was to her and identified the two individuals. Within 24 hours, Miss M had initiated an investigation, written to the two employees involved, In that communication, she conveyed the gravity of the allegations against them and repeated the company's commitment to respecting dignity at work and equality amongst their colleagues. Within nine days of the complaint being raised, she had not only carried out the investigation, but concluded the process, issued a comprehensive report in which she did find that the allegations were unsubstantiated due to insufficient evidence. The report also suggested that in light of the grievance that the company would run an awareness programme as a means of promoting awareness amongst staff of the fact that they had a dignity at work policy and reminding employees of their obligations in regard to equality to one another. The report also made the employee aware that there was an employee assistance programme in place so that if he did have ongoing issues in the workplace that he had this support available to him. She also explained in her evidence quite critically that even though the initial complaint was raised on the 13th of December 
and the investigation process launched immediately, the complainant himself didn't submit written details of the overall allegations until the 1st of February, almost seven weeks later, and at a point when the investigation was well and truly concluded. She then explained that the complainant had raised a second grievance, which was the one that he had referred to in August 2017. At this point, her version of events was that the complainant was insistent that he did not want to meet with Mr. McSee again as part of this process, and also that he did not even want Mr. McSee to know that a second grievance had been raised. He instead requested that the company review a large volume of CCTV footage as evidence to support his allegations. The company did actually review the CCTV footage and the outcome of that was that the footage was inconclusive. It simply didn't support the allegations. And this is something that comes up quite a lot in practice in dealing with grievances, that often an employee, when they come to this point, feel that just because they've raised the grievance, the company must then accept the evidence or must accept their version of events. And of course, it's not that simple. There are two sides to each story and the company must assess the evidence on the balance of probabilities. If on the balance of probabilities, having looked at the evidence, an employer feels that there is insufficient evidence to support the allegations, well then that is the correct outcome, even if the employee doesn't like it. And very often this leads to grievance outcomes being appealed or being referred on to the WRC, but that is the correct position for the employer to take. Miss M then gave evidence of a third grievance which the employee had brought in September 2017. At this point, the complainant claimed that Mr. McSee was deliberately bumping into him in the corridor, was standing in his way and blocking his access to certain buildings and was deliberately shutting doors in his face and other examples of harassing conduct such as that. At this stage, the company realised that there was clearly some degree of difficulty in the relationship between the employee and his colleagues and suggested an independent mediation process be put in place. Both employees actually agreed to this and the mediation process commenced. The mediator's report at the end of the initial mediation process was that while the relationship was not resolved, they were 80% there, and that with a little bit more assistance it could probably be resolved. However, the complainant himself delayed in reverting to the mediator over a number of weeks, and when he did, confirmed that he was not prepared to re-engage in the process until the outcome of a race discrimination claim he had brought before the WRC, which is of course the case we're looking at here today. So in effect, the employee himself had prevented the process from reaching a successful conclusion. Overall, the employer's position was that it had taken all appropriate steps to prevent harassment taking place in the workplace and when the grievance was raised, that they took all appropriate steps quite quickly from that point on. The company also reminded the adjudication officer of its duty of care to both employees involved, not just the complainant, but the second employee against whom the allegations were being made. And this goes back to my earlier point about the balance of probabilities when it comes to assessing the evidence. The decision then fell for the adjudication officer, who was chairing the hearing, to decide whether or not the employee's claim should be upheld. She opened her decision by repeating the definition of harassment in the employment equality legislation. And harassment is defined as follows. Any unwanted conduct related to any of the discriminatory grounds being conduct which has the purpose or effect of violating a person's dignity and creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for the person, such unwanted conduct may consist of acts, requests, spoken words, gestures or the production, display or circulation of written words, pictures or other material. In essence, the obligation under the Employment Equality Act is that an employer shall not allow an employee to be treated less favourably or harassed by reason of their status under any one of the nine protected grounds in the legislation, 
In this case, of course, we were looking at race at the ground. The adjudication officer then explained that there is a defence available to employers under Section 14 of the legislation, where the employer can show it took all appropriate steps to prevent harassment occurring in the workplace or where it became aware of alleged harassment that it took appropriate steps to deal with it from that point on. And she read out the section from the legislation as follows. It shall be a defence for an employer to show that it took such steps as are reasonably practicable to prevent harassment from occurring in the first place and in circumstances where such harassment has occurred that it took action to reverse its effect. In other words, the law recognises the fact that with the best will in the world, if an employee is intent on harassing or discriminating against a colleague, that there is very little an employer can do to prevent that happening, even if it takes all steps available to it. The law then recognises this reality and provides a defence for employers where they can show that they took all reasonable steps. On the first part of this section and defence, the adjudication officer referred to repeated decisions from the Labour Court which all held that if an employer wants to show that it has taken appropriate steps, it must at a minimum have a clear anti-harassment policy in place and one that has been effectively communicated to all staff involved. On the facts of this case, the adjudication officer was quite satisfied that the company clearly did have such a policy and that everybody knew about it. On the second part of the defence, as to what the employer did once it became aware of alleged harassment, she explained that this comes down to an assessment of what action the employer has taken on becoming aware of a complaint and how promptly it took such action. She then turned to the facts of the case to apply them to the defence. It was clear from the evidence that the employer had acted immediately. Within 24 hours of the grievance being brought to the employer's attention, it had initiated an investigation, and within nine days of the investigation starting, the whole process had concluded. Furthermore, it was quite clear that the employer was committed to equality and dignity at work in the workplace, not only in how it dealt with the grievance, but also the message it was conveying throughout this process. The fact that it set up the Employee Awareness Programme soon after the grievance and scheduled it at a time to ensure that the maximum number of staff would be available to attend was clearly positive. Likewise, the existence and reference to the Employee Assistance Programme for the complainant in the report was a further example of how the employer was acting appropriately. Likewise, it came out in the evidence that the Dignity at Work policy itself was printed off and disseminated to all of the employees who attended the Awareness Programme. When it came to the September 2017 grievance, the adjudication officer was clearly impressed by the fact that the employer had taken on an independent private mediation process to try and facilitate a resolution of the difficulties between the two employees. It was also quite significant that the employee himself, the complainant, was the person who had delayed this process from concluding. In reaching her decision, the adjudication officer was quite satisfied that the measures put in place at the material time were a reasonable response. The employer had clearly taken all reasonable and appropriate steps to deal with the employee's complaint. The employer was therefore entitled to rely upon the defence and the employee's claim was rejected. We can contrast this decision with a very similar case that came up last month where an employer was ordered to pay an employee €43,000 in respect of a sexual harassment claim, quite simply because the employer did nothing to properly investigate the complaint. So what does this decision mean for you as advisors and representatives to large employers in Ireland? First and foremost, and going back to my point at the start of today's episode, it confirms that employers absolutely can win a case before the Workplace Relations Commission when it comes to discrimination. This case just shows how it can be done. Furthermore, 
if you look at the measures that the employer had taken in this case, while they weren't insignificant, they shouldn't have taken up a huge amount of time or cost for the employer. And when you contrast that with the award of 43000 in the case I just referred to, clearly compliance is much more cost effective. More generally and beyond just pounds and pence, you would have to say that dealing with complaints like this properly must have a positive impact on employee morale, employee retention and productivity generally. Overall, I think it's a very useful decision for employers to be aware of and to see how an employer can go about defending one of these cases. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.